This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. When did humanism begin? Well, perhaps it depends on what you mean by humanism. We have various ideas concerning humanism. We know that uh, there were various philosophers in the Middle Ages and also in uh, the era of the French Revolution that were humanists. We also know that uh, Karl Marx was a kind of humanist. And we also know that many in the so-called Christian community over the past 100, 150 years have been humanists. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a humanist? Well, we're all human. So does that is that what it means to be a humanist? Or does it mean to be a humanist that you put all your emphasis on the human and not on God? And to what level do you shift the focus from God to man or from man to God? Does humanism mean that you trust yourself for your salvation, that you become your own Messiah? What is humanism anyway? Well, there's a fella back in the Middle Ages. His name was Erasmus. Some think he was somewhat irascible, and others thought that he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And uh, he was called Christ's humanist. But what does that mean? Well, today on Viewpoint, we're going to talk about that. It's going to involve a certain amount of theology. But uh, you perhaps you've heard the name Erasmus. It's not as popular as the name Luther, Martin Luther, but they were... Well, they existed at the same time and, to a certain extent, had some sparring together, as did many others with Erasmus and Erasmus with them. Was he irascible or was he a wise and uh, Christian, gentle Christian leader? We're going to focus on that here today on Viewpoint because Erasmus has a very significant influence and has had a very significant influence on the realm of the Christian community for many, many years since the early 1500s. So today on Viewpoint, we have a special guest joining us for the first time, Edwin Tate, uh, concerning the fellow Erasmus, and Edwin Tate is representing Christian history Uh, For many, many years, uh, Michael Austin has joined us representing Christian history. And today, uh, Edwin Tate is joining us to talk about this issue of Christian history. Edmund, it's good to have you on the the program. Uh, Thank you, Chuck. Very good to be here. And uh, I noticed that uh, you have the same last name as Jennifer Woodruff Tate, the managing editor of Christian history. How is that? Well, Jennifer's my wife. Uh, she's the managing editor. I have the title of contributing editor, which basically means I help with a lot of brainstorming. I help plan some issues, and I write fairly frequently for the magazine. Um, well, I have virtually a full collection of uh, your magazines going at for decades now yes. and uh, have thoroughly enjoyed being exposed to them and have done everything I could to assist in uh, opening the uh, opportunity to our listeners uh, to participate in uh, Christian history. Uh, what can you tell us about the uh, the history of Christian history first, the magazine that is? Well, it was founded by uh, Kenton Curtis, 
Vision Video. Um, I don't actually know the year, but it was it was some decades ago, uh-huh. and then it was taken over by Christian uh, Christianity Today. Uh, he sold it to them, and they published it for uh, throughout the ninety, I think maybe the eighties, nineties, uh-huh. or early two thousands. And then they decided it was not profitable enough and dropped it. And Bill Curtis, Ken's son, essentially took it up again and began publishing it. Uh, without you know any connection with Christianity Today. So Christianity and, to say, Today decided that history wasn't profitable. Well, they decided this magazine was not profitable. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what I was told. I don't know the exact basis for the for the decision. You know, I wasn't you know privy I, to. I, by the to way, that. I think you're probably right, and I I think they probably decided not only is the magazine not profitable, but Christian history is not profitable uh, in the mind and heart of Christians. And uh, so therein lies a part of the problem, because uh, as we have frequently heard, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. So if we are unwelcome, if history is unwelcome in our minds and hearts as professing Christians, uh, we may very well be living in a danger zone because we're doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. All right. So. Uh, Erasmus, why the selection? I mean, you've covered a lot of uh, uh, various personalities uh, in in the history of the church, but why Erasmus? Well, we have covered, as you said, a lot of other people, and there's been, you know, we've covered the Reformation quite a lot, naturally. There's been mm-hmm. uh, more than one issue on Luther. Uh, I did, uh, I was the issue advisor for a four-issue spread on the Reformation starting in 2017, Mm -hmm. and Erasmus got an article, very good article, by my friend David Fink in the Luther part of, in the first issue of those four, which focused on Luther. There's an article on Erasmus. And I don't remember exactly who first suggested doing an issue on Erasmus, but I jumped at, at, you know, I was very supportive of that, because I've always thought he's been a somewhat underappreciated figure okay. because he didn't really fit. Uh, the Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, condemned his writings. Uh, Catholicism, after the Council of Trent, saw him as kind of dangerous. And Protestants always felt like he had not gone far enough uh-huh. uh, and had helped pave the way, but had refused to endorse Protestantism. And so he kind of fell down between the camps. And I'm very interested in those sorts of... In other words, he straddled the fence. Well, that's the negative way to put it. You know, I would put it, Erasmus never really accepted that the church was divided. He, I would say Erasmus believed in what C.S. Lewis would call near Christianity. All right. That and yet, really and to a certain extent, wouldn't it be true that actually Luther himself never uh, wanted to see the church divided? That was not his intent. Well, nobody wanted to see the church divided, but I would say Luther didn't think the church ever was divided. Because from Luther's perspective, the true church was the church that taught the true doctrine, uh-huh. and he believed he was preaching the true doctrine. Right. You know? So, so he didn't he didn't think he was splitting from the true church. He thought he was rejecting the papacy and scholasticism and canon law, all of which he thought were kind of parasitic growths on the church. That's all right. So, when you use the term doing. "true church," you're actually referring to the Roman Catholic Church as as commonly understood, aren't you? Well, no, I'm saying whatever we mean by the true church. You know, what the creeds refer to as the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. All Christians presumably believe in that. Right. And the question is, what do we mean by that, right? And Luther and the other Protestants essentially redefined. They said apostolic succession, the papacy, 
all those things are not really essential to the church. All right. Well, they but were the absolutely they were right. Defending the church that had always existed. They were absolutely yeah. right because those things were the concoctions of uh, humankind uh, mimicking the ancient Roman Empire and the uh, uh, Pontifex Maximus that. Uh, the Pope became the inheritor of the Roman Emperor's Pontifus Maximus, so that he was known as the Pontiff, and then the Pope, or Papa. And uh, so all of that, those were constructs that were developed by humankind. So was that humanism? How do we well, do? I, I'm, I'm throwing this out. Hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. Hold on just a second, Edwin. Uh, we're going into a break, so I throw that out. Uh, for contemplation as we uh, get back into uh, the program in about uh, 60 seconds. So hang in there. Respond to that in a moment. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Always a joy to come before you here on Viewpoint to talk about the things that matter most. And in fact, while at first it may seem a little confusing to hear about a fellow by the name of Erasmus, uh, who was considered one of the great, uh, greatest humanists in the church, the question is, what did humanism mean to a 16th century reader, that is in the 15th century back then, when Erasmus wrote? And we have just... Uh, bantered back and forth with our special guest here, uh, Edwin Tate, who is uh, an editor with the Christian History magazine and writer, his wife being the uh, managing editor. And so uh, it's it's a wonderful conversation to be able to have. Uh, and I don't do interviews. I do conversations, Edwin. I guess you figure that out by now. Yes. So... Uh, here we have a situation where Luther actually didn't reject the universal Catholic Church as such, but he reject papism, uh, the papal authority, and all of its uh, quagmires and uh, uh, the humanistic aspects of it that actually were creating perversions in the true church as he understood it. So where did uh, Erasmus stand in all of that controversy? Well, I think the question, you know, that you've raised several times that we have to ask is what is humanism? Exactly. Uh, and I think before I can answer that question, we have to really clear the ground there because True. you're using humanism, you know, in this very broad and frankly rather very loaded way. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, right? that's and, purposeful and that's, because people, people understood it that way. Renaissance humanism that way. You know, that's, that's a common, it's the 19th, early 20th century scholars often talked about Renaissance humanism that way. Jacob Burkhart's famous book on the Renaissance right. in the mid 1800s sort of glorified what he saw as the kind of, the, 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 the humanism in a very secular sense of, right. of the Renaissance. So that's why I'm uh, asking you to clarify, right, uh, right. because so, this is how so, people understand it today. Uh, exactly. And it's a very important conversation. I have been very influenced by the work of Paul Oscar Christeller who two of my professors in grad school had studied with. And 
he he was very interesting guy because he was he was himself a refugee from the Nazis um, who uh, who became who came to America after World War II and really redefined how scholars thought about the Renaissance. And Chris Stoller argued that humanism in the Renaissance really primarily was an academic discipline. So essentially, it was kind of like we you know we use the term the humanities today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so humanists were people. So in medieval culture, the dominant discipline was philosophy. It was dialectic. It was large. Uh, they had very rigorous logic, especially in the late Middle Ages. Right. The academic philosophers, the scholastics, they were very concerned with kind of abstract truth right. and with careful organization analysis, following Aristotle. Uh, they weren't as concerned with literary style. Uh, the humanists were people who wanted to go back to the ancient world and use ancient Latin and Greek writings as models of language because they were convinced that you needed more than just knowing truth. You needed to move people through beautiful language. All right. And that's really the heart of humanism with this concern with literature and language as a way of making, of helping people become better. Well, um, isn't that interesting because today, What we see Mm -hmm. happening in the broader Christian church, I'm not talking about Roman Catholic, I'm talking about the broader Christian church of whatever uh, uh, iteration you may find yourself, uh, is is characteristic by a, uh, a trend over the past 40, 50 years to do exactly what Erasmus was talking about. And that is to, shall we say, popularize in a way that seemed uh, applicational rather than focus on truth. We were focusing on uh, how people felt about the Christian life. Well, Erasmus himself, it's not that he didn't believe in truth, right? I mean, he certainly thought there were truths that were really Mm -hmm. important, Mm -hmm. but he thought there were a lot fewer of them than late medieval Catholicism typically thought. All right. You know, his tendency was to say, we were, we're way too worried about these very precise dogmatic points about details of getting all the rituals right, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, what you were earlier describing as, you know, accretions or human constructs, whatever you, you, you term you use. Mm-hmm. Erasmus, he wouldn't go as far as you, but he would to some extent agree, right? That's the sense in which he paved the way for Luther, because he questioned a lot of these things, said, wait a minute, historically, some of these things are developments. You know, the very early church didn't look exactly like the church of the 15th century, right? Absolutely. And, In fact, and so the whole concept of the... they were histor- A lot of the humanists were historians. They were very interested in historical change and development. In fact, the so whole Lorenzo concept Gala, of the papacy didn't even exist, actually, in the very early church. Uh, well, it as, how you define the papacy, but well, it certainly the, didn't look like <laughs> it certainly didn't look like the the, the Renaissance papacy. You know, that's correct. Okay, concerned with the power and the pomp and the the willingness of some popes to wage war. That was what really horrified him. He was mm, very mm. very strongly opposed to war. Whether he was a pacifist or just a very very strict just war person, we could argue. But he he thought most of the wars going on in his day, at least, were were unjustified, and. And the fact that Christians were fighting each other was horrifying to him. So that was his concern. He had a moral reform concern to bring people back to what he thought were the basics of the Christian faith, following Jesus, trying to live like Jesus. He didn't deny, here's the thing, he never denied any of the doctrines of the Catholic Church. But he kind of relativized many of them by suggesting that they weren't 
as important as following Jesus, trying to live more like Jesus, studying the scripture, trying to conform oneself to, to the, the picture of, of Christ that we find in the scriptures, especially in the Gospels. That was his focus. Well, it sounds an awful lot like uh, he was uh, following in the steps of Jesus himself, who uh, rebuked the religious leaders of his day uh, that had added and added and added and added uh, various, uh, we won't call them papal, but they were uh, rabbinic, rabbinic additions to the Word of God. And he said, you by your traditions are making the Word of God of none effect. You're putting on people burdens greater than they can bear. How about let's get back to what the Bible, what the, the message of the gospel is all about. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is that's kind of the ilk in which uh, Erasmus was at least seeking in some respect uh, to restore. I, I, I think I think that's fair to de- as a description of what he was trying to do, yeah. Okay. Um, but how he went about doing it by referring people back to the Greek and Roman classics and so on, uh, that disturbed a lot of people in the church because they thought that what he was doing was infecting the church with paganism. Well, there was some criticism of that, but, I mean, that was not a new thing. You know, people have been – that humanism in that sense had been going on for quite a while. Uh, there certainly were people who were concerned about that. But, of course, it was normal in, in scholasticism to study, you know, pagan philosophers, right, Aristotle. Uh, so, and Erasmus was actually, compared to some other humanists, he was critical of too much of an emphasis on, uh, on, the, on the pagan classics. He, for instance, he, he criticized the people who wanted to write exactly like Cicero. There was this cult of Cicero where you wanted to use the great Roman orator. Okay. And it was seen as the model of style. And Erasmus satirized that. You know, he was, it, what, what distinguished him is that he was very interested. He was interested in the, the great Roman, Greek and Roman classics. He loved a lot of the pagan writings, mm-hmm. but he also wanted to read, he wanted to primarily focus on the New Testament and the early church. And so he, you know, he edits the New Testament. He translates the New Testament. He provides scholarly notes on the New Testament, paraphrases, and he produces these editions of the writings of the Church Fathers. So that instead of just reading isolated quotes, you could actually, you know, like we can today, you could pick up a whole volume, and you could start at the beginning, and you can read through the complete works of Jerome or Origen or, you know, Basil or whoever. Uh-huh. Okay, so he was he was a, a very educationally minded uh, person, wasn't yes. he? Yes, his program was very much an educational one. Yes. And, and it was a very elite one because he mostly, he wrote in Latin. I once asked a, a great scholar in Abacus what Erasmus' native language was, because he was born in the Netherlands. He spent a lot of time in England, Italy, France. What, it, what was his native language? He said, I think it was Latin. <laughs> okay. So he thought that Latin was the language of God then? Well, not really. Everybody, I mean, it was the educated language, right? right. So everybody used it. It's just that Erasmus was so international and so... You know, that was the world he lived in. That I mean, that wasn't that unusual. He just was particularly linguistically gifted. And, you know, so he didn't write a lot for the common people himself. He, mm-hmm. wa- he wanted to educate the common people, but it was kind of trickle down. Okay. So Tyndale, for instance, when he translated the Bible, you know, his famous statement about wanting the plowboy to be whistling scripture as he followed the plow, that was right out of Erasmus. Um, but Erasmus wasn't the one actually doing that. He was translating it. He was doing stuff in Latin, and then other people were going out and popularizing it, sometimes in ways he didn't approve of. The uh, German philosopher 
Wilhelm Adilthe uh, yes. called Erasmus a forerunner mm-hmm. of the Enlightenment. He called him the mm-hmm. Voltaire of the 16th century and a founder of religious rationalism. That wasn't exactly a glowing uh, uh, affirmation that he gave to Erasmus in the light well, I of think Christendom. Delphi meant it as one, because I think Delphi thought that was a good thing. Well, uh, I, I, I believe he did. But, but, yeah. but to us, looking back, that was as about, about as bad a thing as he could possibly have said. Well, I think that I think that's the view of Erasmus that I, at least, have always tried to fight against. I, I think that I don't think it's completely wrong. There are obviously some connections, you know, the concern about superstition and so on and so forth. It's not like there's no connections between Erasmus's humanism and the Enlightenment. But I think I think there's a I, I, there are really very different kinds of movements. And I think that Erasmus just call him a rationalist. I mean, in the sense that he has a kind of common sense approach. He's very he's he's got a certain skepticism. You know, he doesn't. So he criticized a lot of the miracle stories and, you know, the relics and so on that were going around in his day. But he has a very basic core Christian faith. You know, he believes in miracles. He believes in the resurrection of okay. Jesus. He never questions those things. All right. So he, uh, he, he focused on the basics and then said, okay, now we agree on these. Uh, mm-hmm. Now how should we then live? I think that's a very fair way. Of All right, so that's like the phrase that came from Francis Schaeffer back in the 1970s in his book, right. How Should We Then Live? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, whether Erasmus' ideas are the same as Schaeffer's, it's in the same but yes, that phrase. <laughs> exactly, sure. because yeah. I don't think they were. All right. Now, uh, there was a, a, at University of Rotterdam, the Erasmus University of Rotterdam mm-hmm. declared that Erasmus gave the institution its name because it stands for global citizenship. Now, that really caught my attention because we're right now at a moment in time when globalism is being pursued with a vengeance such that starting this very year, the Great Reset and uh, uh, the New World Order are set to be launched and completed by 2030. What say you with regard to Erasmus and that concept? I, I think that's. I think making that that comparison. I think it's so anachron. It's so anachronistic. I mean, again, I'm a historian, so I retreat to that, right? I. I it's a very different context. Okay, um, so he wouldn't. It, he wouldn't relate to that idea. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's 500 years ago. It's a completely. I just think. I think it's very hard to say how it relates. You know, uh, in his own day, he was certainly internationalist. Because he was very critical, for instance, of monarchs, who basically thought that. They pursued their glory. You know, mm-hmm. they they brought glory to their nation by waging war and expanding their territory. All right. So was uh, he was he, he criticism of of nationhood? Not really. Uh, he, in fact, James Tracy, who's one of the best scholars on Erasmus, in my opinion, has a great book called Erasmus of the Low Countries, uh, which influenced the article that I wrote for for this. Uh, well, and his other book, The Politics of Erasmus, uh, and he talks about how Erasmus was actually very closely connected in his early years, to movements in the Netherlands that were kind of nationalistic, that were very much asserting the kind of the the local rights of the Dutch, you know, over against, and even just different groups within the Netherlands, it wasn't even unified Netherlands, over against the imperial dynasty that ruled them, right, the Habsburgs. And that 
Erasmus, you know, was connected to some of these very sort of patriotic Dutch politicians. Mm-hmm. So he had a very Dutch, even though he was very international, he also had a very Dutch perspective, a suspicion of absolute monarchy, a suspicion of aristocracy and chivalry, and, you know, this very kind of urban bourgeois, we want kind of sober, godly, educated people kind of running their own affairs. You know, he, he didn't reject monarchy, but he wanted limited monarchy, okay. uh, constitutional monarchy, essentially. Well, I um, want to uh, uh, make available... Uh, the magazine, Christian History Magazine, this particular issue is called Erasmus, Christ Humanist. And uh, using the term humanist uh, does not necessarily correspond to what we think as humanism today, uh, the David Humes and and so on, some of those, uh, or even Voltaire. But uh, this will give you an insight into an aspect of the struggle in the Christian world during Martin Luther's time. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Well, here we are again uh, talking about the matter of uh, a fellow by the name of Erasmus, uh, referred to as Christ's humanist. This particular issue of Christian History Magazine uh, is available to you, as all of the issues are. Uh, tell us, Edmund, how, Edwin, how uh, people can get a hold of this. Um, well, you can look at the website, and uh, let's see, but uh, I don't, because I'm downstairs, I don't have access to the computer, so the, the address right off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but Christian History uh if you, if you Google Christian History Magazine, um, you know we have a website. You can you can write in and uh, subscribe. There's uh, it's a suggested donation. We will not refuse to send it mm-hmm. uh, to people who can't pay. But naturally, we need to keep the magazine going. So we appreciate it when people are, are sure. able to pay. Well, so, it is a full color uh, expression. Uh, there really isn't anything else out there like this. And whether or not you like the discussion concerning Erasmus or not is not really the point, uh, because most of the issues are such that virtually anybody that has any interest in the history of the church, Christianity, and its application today to understand why we're here today, what's going on today as it relates to the past, uh, you will be delighted in the magazine, I'm sure. And uh, so you go to, what is it, christianhistory.org.com? What is it? Uh, I believe, 
believe it's dot org. You see, I, I, this is this is where I'm sorry. I'm the Erasmus person, but my wife's the, really the magazine person. <laughs> uh, Jen, uh, website quickly address. What is it? It's dot org or dot com. ChristianHistoryInstitute.org. ChristianHistoryInstitute.org. Okay. Yes. So uh, it's available, friends. I urge you to uh, to begin to get this this magazine. I think you're going to be very very uh, excited about it when you begin to get this magazine. Every uh, how often does it come out now, Edwin? Uh, every quarter. Every quarter. Generally. So you're not going to be bombarded all the time. But every quarter, you can look forward to a delight to go through a full-color uh, expression of Christian history in a particular area, particular focus. So it's it's wonderful. So what made Erasmus simultaneously immensely popular and yet so controversial were his efforts to render Greco-Roman literature and the new methods developed for studying it relevant to Christian concerns. Uh, that's a statement here in the magazine. And uh, so popularity doesn't necessarily mean truth. It doesn't necessarily mean you're right. It just means you're popular. We have a lot of people today that are popular but aren't necessarily right. In fact, they're popular oftentimes because they're not right. So... How are we to understand uh, Erasmus and his popularity? Well, he was never popular with everyone. Uh, he always had enemies. Um, even though he was, in some sense, always a monk, as I say in my article in there, I mean, he didn't live in the monastery, but he always tried to follow at least some aspects of, of, of the monastic rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very critical of a lot of aspects of monasticism as it had become, and monks, uh, many members of religious orders, the Franciscans, Dominicans, who were very powerful, dominated the universities. Many of them saw him as a menace, as a heretic. Uh, mm. You know, and um, and so he, the universities in particular, actually, a lot of the universities didn't like him because the academic philosophers and theologians, because he wasn't. He, he he studied theology at the University of Paris, but he was very critical of what he was taught there. And okay, so how would you compare? How would you compare the resistance to him? Uh, with the resistance to fellows like uh, John Huss and uh, John Wyke, Wycliffe that uh, were so persecuted that they were literally uh, tormented to death by the Roman Catholic yeah, Church. Well, Wycliffe was not was not killed, but his body was 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 burned after his death. So yeah, I mean, um, and Huss, of course, was executed at the Council of Constance. Um, it, that was that was a bit earlier, a uh, mm-hmm. little bit different situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was some of the same sorts of I don't know if conservative is the right word, but you know, uh, forces within the Catholic Church that that were suspicious of what they saw as ideas that weakened the authority of the church, or 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 so on. Uh, certainly, when it came to Luther, uh, one of the things that people noticed early on. Uh, the reason people associated Erasmus and Luther is they had the same enemies initially. <laughs> okay. The same people who so had the enemy of my enemy here. is my friend. Well, right. So people, when Luther showed up, people said, this guy sounds like Erasmus, but he's sort of louder and more forthright. Whereas Erasmus used irony, uh, was very careful, was very nuanced, mm. used a lot of very tentative language. He liked to kind of undercut 
things in, in, in somewhat indirect ways and use scholarship, Ruther just came out with guns blazing, rhetorically. <laughs> he cut and to so the that chase. that was the initial reaction. The guy I wrote my dissertation on, Martin Bootser, uh, who was a young Dominican, was reading a lot of Erasmus, didn't like being a Dominican much. He just joined the Dominicans to get an education. And he goes to Heidelberg in 1518, here's Luther, and he's just blown away. This guy's amazing. And he writes to a friend, he's like Erasmus, but, you know, he's bolder. It became clear as time went on that wasn't really true, that Luther was developing in ways that were very different from Erasmus and had rather different concerns. But initially, people who had supported Erasmus tended to see Luther as kind of the new next-generation trailblazer who was going to take take the banner forward of yeah, what right. they would call good learning, biblical scholarship, over against what they saw as kind of hidebound scholastic philosophy and so on. So Erasmus stuck his nose in the door and Luther barged through it. That's at least how many people at the time would have seen it. <laughs> okay. I would argue that actually the Reformed movement, the Swiss Reformation, mm-hmm. people like Zwingli uh, and so on were really closer to Erasmus, even though they went much further than he did, but they, were, they had more similar concerns, and even the Anabaptists who were very different, because many of them were not highly educated, but mm-hmm. their focus on the Sermon on the Mount, on following Jesus, uh, you know, on nonviolence, is very similar to Erasmus. Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone, while Erasmus had language about salvation by faith, um, he, he thought that Luther was way too dogmatic, that Luther had a set of kind of new doctrinal propositions he was pushing that were themselves kind of dubious and not really, not really what mattered. Mm, okay. uh, that was, and he particularly disagreed with Luther about free will, that Luther denied free will. That was what they had the big fight right. for. So I think what we're really saying is Erasmus actually was what you might call a Christian pragmatist. Uh, he hey, was I focusing think, yeah, on, anyways, yeah. on morality, behavior, is your life conforming to the life of Christ? And others were focusing on uh, theological nitpicking. That's how he saw it, yes. Yeah, okay. And he thought that Luther had his own theological nitpicks and was not really helping in the end. It's much. interesting, though, that as you point out in the magazine, the crowning mm-hmm. achievement of so-called biblical humanism was the lasting influence of Erasmus in his 1516 New Testament. Yes. That kind of took over the whole realm at that time. Mm-hmm. How could he get that popularized and respected when he was seen as uh, somebody to be rejected by the so-called respected uh, Christian authorities. Well, again, there were people who opposed it. There were people who supported it. There mm-hmm. was a very, you know, there was there were networks of very influential humanists, some of whom were very highly placed in the church. Uh, in fact, oh, the papacy popes generally liked to rest. The, the early the early 16th century pope pope leo x whom we all think of as kind of a bad guy right who was certainly not a terribly holy or pious exactly person, mm-hmm. but he cared very much about art and culture and erasmus kind of liked him because he was he was because he protected erasmus you know he uh, he didn't like pope julius the predecessor who was who waged war but leo you know is building churches and he's 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 patronizing artists and writers and so a lot of people in the papal curia they might be kind of corrupt, but they love learning and scholarship, and they would actually protect Erasmus. <laughs> and some of them were not corrupt. There were some that were very sincere, also. You know, but the, the not too is, many. That, that, well, yeah, it started actually. Yeah, 
There was a movement in the 1530s, a reform of that was after Erasmus' time. But anyway, the point is a lot of people, even highly, highly placed in the Catholic Church, um, they cared about scholarship. And they, so there were, he had powerful protectors. He had people who were influential who mm-hmm. liked him. He had other people who were influential who hated him. He was a very polarizing figure. Uh, and the, the New Testament was very controversial. Um, for one thing, he was, he didn't include initially the Johannine comma, the, the phrase that says, you know, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mm. because he couldn't find it in Greek manuscripts. And, uh, and that, that raised a huge furor. You're denying the Trinity because right. you're not including this phrase. Uh, he, then he translated the New Testament and in the Gospel of John, he translates in uh, in the beginning was the word in Arche and Hologos in Greek. He translates Logos word as uh, as sermo. The traditional translation was verbum, which is like a word, like a part of speech, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and he translates it as sermo, like the speech or discourse. So Jesus, the Logos, the eternal word of God, right? Is for Erasmus the speech of God, the persuasive speech of God, come into come to earth to 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 bring up to sort of woo us back to God by 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 his beauty in a way. And people found that to be really destabilizing. Like, no, you're changing the words of Scripture. You're this is the traditional word is verbum. You're saying ceremony. This is wrong. So we got in trouble for that kind of thing. Okay. Wow. We're 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 starting to get into brass tacks here to find out uh, what was really driving the man. And uh, the interesting thing is that in the beginning was the word. It wasn't mm-hmm. just uh, speech. Jesus was intended to be the fleshing out of the Torah. He was the mm-hmm. living Torah. And uh, so in that sense, I guess you could say he was the speech of the Torah in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the magazine... You say virtually all Protestant Bibles printed in any European language during the Reformation era and for some time afterward were based on Erasmus's New Testament. I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, apparently, what, what uh, the translation was, was consistent with uh, the Protestant Reformation. Or... Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, they believed they were following, you know, the original languages, Greek mm-hmm. and Hebrew, right. and they, you know, most of the Protestant reformers at least knew some Greek and Hebrew. Some of them taught it to themselves. All right, we'll pick up um, on this after the break, Edwin. We'll be right back. This is Viewpoint. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. 
Talk in today, friends, we're talking with uh, one of the writers and the husband of the editor-in-chief of Christian History Magazine, uh, which is a very, very uh, important publication, I believe, and very helpful for Christians at every level. And you can read this. Uh, Edwin, obviously, is uh, a historian, and he speaks like a historian, but as you read these magazines, what you find is that anybody, whether you're a historian or not, can read these. And there's so many nuances and pictures and uh, uh, descriptions and so on that it's it's quite fascinating. And I urge you to uh, avail yourself of the magazine. Again, you can go to uh, Christian History Magazine right there on uh, Google it, and it'll lead you to their website. Or the website is what again, Edwin? It's ChristianHistoryInstitute.org. ChristianHistoryInstitute.org. Right. Okay. So one of the things that uh, a direct quote in the magazine is that Erasmus aimed to make Christ come alive for readers. And I think to a certain extent, that's what I was trying to say uh, mm-hmm. in the last segment, that he wanted to yeah. make the Christian life practical. He didn't want it to be just an argument of intellectualizing the Scripture with uh, tit-for-tat kind of uh, arguments about this word and that word, but actually to get down to brass tacks and live it out. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, um you said that Erasmus radically disagreed with Luther, Luther's view concerning free will, which means yeah. he also radically disagreed with Calvin's view on free will. Yes. How so? Uh, well, Erasmus believed in free will. You know, he believed that human beings have free will. Uh, and I Well, if we didn't have free will, then how was Joshua going to choose this day whom he would serve? Well, that's his. If you read his diatribe on free will that he wrote against Luther, that's exactly the kind of argument he makes. You know, mm-hmm. that's that the classic argument that commands, promises, uh, those things imply that we have some degree of freedom. Whereas Luther said, human being, the man is like a beast written by either God or Satan. And Calvin has a somewhat similar, exactly. similar metaphor. So how could God be a just God and hold humankind or any man or woman responsible if he didn't have a choice? Do you want me to, to get into what Luther and Calvin would say about that? or Because, or, I mean, I can explain their position if you want well, me to. No, but, I, know, I, I understand that each has a, has a position. But yeah. uh, that I'm trying to make it simple so that yeah. everyone can understand that there is a true tension between mm-hmm. Calvin and Luther and many others, including Arminius and so on. All right. Yeah. Now, we want to talk uh, in this last segment here, or at least I want to talk in this last segment, mm-hmm. about the uh, segment where you talk about the promised land. Uh, I thought that was a, a bit of an interesting uh, title or reference, uh, Erasmus and the Promised Land. But what do you what do you mean by Promised Land? Debating over the Promised Land. What is that all about? Um, sorry, I'm trying to ref- remember which article that was. I <laughs> I tend not to come up with the titles. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, I would need. Uh, 
Well, Amy Nelson Burnett wrote this piece, and uh, when Luther first came to public attention with his criticism of indulgences, many saw him as a proponent of the same biblical humanism that Erasmus was championing and associated the early Luther affair with the conflict between scholasticism and humanism. Many of Erasmus' defenders became early supporters of Luther. So... Where does that lead us since Luther and Calvin did not believe in free will? It seems to me that there was a radical breach between these uh, folk. Yeah, and Erasmus, now, the thing is, when Erasmus wrote against Luther about free will, it's not clear he really expected it to be quite as big a deal as <laughs> Luther made it. Mm-hmm. He, he, people were pushing him to write against Luther to prove that he was not Lutheran. And he agreed with a lot of what he thought Luther was doing. So he he picked his ground very carefully. And I think he really thought, Luther's just going a little too far. He just wants to make sure people trust in God's grace, which we all want to do, right? You know, we know we don't save save ourselves. God saves us. And if I just, you know, I, I'll just point out Luther's going a little too far about this. It's not clear he really expected such a inflammatory response. You know, and yeah, Luther writes back and is like, no, there's no free will. That's kind of the core of the gospel. That's the core issue between me and the papists is you papists believe in free will and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> and well, the interesting thing about this is that uh, Luther actually went so far. I'm not going to try to make a direct quote, but he actually went so far as to say it doesn't matter how you live. You can live like hell as long as you uh, confess Christ as your savior. Uh, because you were led by the Holy Spirit to do so, now you're yeah. saved, and you can live like hell. Yeah. Okay, now I am going to have to defend Luther a bit. That's that's not actually a fair interpretation of what Luther said. Well, he did, want to cut out, he did want to cut out the uh, tongues of the Jews and so on. He wasn't exactly your, uh, your uh, classic right. expressor of a spirit of mercy and grace. Well, Right. There's all kinds of problems with Luther, but, but that particular <laughs> statement, but that particular statement was a letter to Melanchthon, to his friend, yeah. who was, I think it was Melanchthon, who was, who was very scrupulous, was very worried, was, you know, this was just someone who was trying to live a holy life. And Luther liked exaggeration. He liked to make these very strong rhetorical statements. And so he, what he said is something like, uh, you know, sin boldly, but believe even more boldly. Yeah. And, sin boldly. You know, even if I were to commit uh-huh. I recall a, a, that. A, yeah. a thousand times a day. But the, he, he also says over and over and over again in other writings that someone who has genuine faith will not want to sin. And he, you know, which is a kind of standard Protestant view historically. Which makes and no he, sense when he, when he says that you have no choice the whole idea of the word want is irrelevant and makes no well, it's sense. It's not irrelevant because in the Augustinian tradition, right, which Luther and Calvin are following in a very radical way, God, what you want, the question is why do you, why do we want what we want? They would say, right? And God makes and you want to, we, God makes you want to want what you want, and therefore mm-hmm. he's in total control and you're a puppet. That's basically the, the, the theology of Calvin is, and Luther. Is it, is it really a puppet, though, if we're talking about God? Because God is not another being sort of in the universe manipulating us. God is the source of our being. Mm-hmm. And so I think the relationship between us and God is more complicated than that. And, well, that's I a mean, nice, smooth a way to say it. We'll defend them a little bit on this. <laughs> but, but the practical application of it yeah. is what I get to and what we focus on on this program. 
You could be yeah. full of all the theological rhetoric in the world, but then you have to get down to reality and brass tacks. Well, the practical result, certainly in Calvinism, has not historically been that people don't care about morality. In fact, if anything, Calvinism tends to foster a very earnest, intense, almost legalistic morality. Because in practice, people tend to see whether they are leading holy lives as the sign of whether they are elect or not. And so, uh, and so in practice... That used to be how it was. That used to be how it was. But in the last 60 years, it has shifted dramatically away from that. And that is, Mm. if I confess Christ as my Savior 40 years ago at a Billy Graham rally... I'm right. in like Flint, I'm saved to the uttermost, right. and I can live like hell for the rest of my life, right. and I'm in, and I don't have yeah. to live a moral life. Right, but most of those folks are not Calvinists, and they don't actually believe in predestination, but they do believe in eternal security. So they <laughs> kept eternal security out of the Reformed tradition, but they've thrown away the rest of it, the context. Well, they <laughs> all work together in a synergy, and therein lies the problem, and uh, it has led <laughs> our country Originally, it led our country into a very moral country, and most recently in the last 60 years has led us diametrically opposite to that, so that the divorce rate in the Bible Belt of America, which is the hyper uh, focus of Calvinism, is 50% higher than the nation as a whole and has been for the past 20 years. Figure that one out. I have problems with Calvinism. I don't actually think Calvinism itself is responsible for that. But you know, we <laughs> Oh, I didn't say that. it was. I didn't say it was, okay. but I yeah. think it's a fascinating thing that if they're pursuing morality to define their status of election, uh, there's something seriously wrong with the status of election well, the, in the Bible right. Belt the of America. The typical modern evang- American evangelical does not think that way, exactly. The typical modern, you know, not to pick on just the Southern Baptists, but they, they you know, they, they tend to have, uh, often have the theology that believes in eternal security but not predestination. You know, mm-hmm. they think, like, yeah, like you say, I believed in Jesus, and that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. So you um, pick and choose your theology, whichever seems to market well. And, uh, they, so the, the same wars are rapidly increasing within the SBC or Southern Baptist Convention as we speak. The war of Calvinism versus non-Calvinism, and what do these things mean? So the very kinds of arguments that Erasmus and Luther were engaged in, or others, are now reoccurring in our time on the near edge of the second coming. That bothers me. Doesn't it bother you? Um, I It bothers it. <laughs> it, uh, well, lots of things bother me about modern Christianity, Chuck. I mean, and and yeah, I, uh, certainly a lot of the resurgence of Calvinism, the so-called young, restless, and reformed. Uh-huh. Uh So it's been like it, be- because- it has become a virtual cult among the uh, those forty and under. Well, and they p- and they pick the thing is they tend to highlight. I mean, the Reformed tradition is a very rich, complex thing, which I think actually owes quite a lot to Erasmus in some ways. Mm-hmm. And they pick out certain parts of it, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, and they don't and they don't necessarily you know. So a lot of my friends, because I'm a, because I'm a Reformation scholar, I know a lot of folks who are like belong to the Christian Reformed Church or mm-hmm. you know Presbyterian, you know, right. in the, the very historic Reformed churches, and they just roll their eyes at these folks. 
You know, they're right. like, you guys have picked out like the five points and predestination and you just want to sort of run that. It's like, that's what it is to be reformed. And there's a whole heck of a lot more to it than that. You know? Yeah. Well, there have been a lot of tulips planted out there in yeah. uh, many people's yards and in the churches. For those of who don't know what I mean by that, that's the acronym for the five uh, elements of Calvinism. Tulips, T-U-L-I-P. We're not going to go through those uh, today because that's not really our focus but right. we have to t- discuss it because Erasmus actually uh, brings all of that up. Now, here's what I'd like yeah. you to do, Edwin. Uh, I'd like you to take a, a couple of minutes now and uh, help people understand. Let's get away from Erasmus now, and let's talk about Christian history and Christian History Magazine. Okay. I want to give you the opportunity now to to open the floodgates and what can people expect uh, if they uh, gravitate now toward Christian History Magazine? Well, we are a magazine that tries to bring knowledge of Christian history to people who are not academics. Okay. We try to recruit scholars who are academics when possible, mm-hmm. but we actually would rather have someone with writing ability and good good ability to, to research and find things out and read scholars who can then translate those rather than a scholar who can't write and make things clear. Okay, very good. Uh, In other words, to, to get... make it practical like Erasmus. Yes, but we do try to get, <laughs> we do try to get the best scholars you know, when we can. Uh-huh. The, the standpoint of Christian History Institute, uh, faith-wise, is based on the Apostles' Creed. It's, again, basically mere Christianity. It's primarily evangelical Protestant readership, but it's, a, it's an ecumenical Christian christian magazine we are Mm -hmm. we are trying to represent all different christian perspectives fairly and sympathetically and try to help people understand what it meant to be a christian at a particular period of time you know and what we can then learn from from that era Mm -hmm. or that specific figure we're studying um and we try to leave open where the application should go we don't take political stands we're not trying to push a particular agenda necessarily but but to educate always within the light of faith, always right. with the goal of bringing people closer. Well, to I think you do a very good job of it, and uh, that's why, uh, you know, every quarter when it comes out, I want to make sure that we're giving focus to it, because I think it is such a helpful publication. ChristianHistoryInstitute.com, excuse me, .org, friends. That's where you can look it up on the website. Uh, and thank you so much, Edwin, for joining us. And, uh, friend, look. Every day we come before you, it's been 27 and a half years confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home, which we've done even today in the issue of theology. Thanks for joining us. Become a partner as we launch into the new year. Send your gifts by faith to Save America Ministries. Go to the website, saveus.org. God bless, and let's press on in Christ this year. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grismeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home. Thank you.